Last summer, one of the small groups, uh, one of the topics was, it was called Wrestling with Contentment. And um, after, uh, like, I, I, I taught one of them, and Jake taught another one, and just coming out of it, I was like, this, this, is, this is a Sunday night series at some point. I just wasn't sure when. And now is the time. Um, and so security and contentment go together. But I'm going to try to leave the security stuff out of it, especially now that God's just been like, okay, uh, there should be no security in the room. But chances are it's going to, is going to creep back in because we have a real enemy who wants us to be insecure about who we are and who God is and what he's done and all that kind of stuff. So we're going to talk about contentment and the way that we all wrestle through it. Um, I don't really have a definition for what I'm talking about with contentment or, or re- really maybe, maybe discontentment would also be a way of, of talking about it. Um, I think in, in my mind... When, when my life has not turned out the way that I thought it would or should by this point, and that affects me in a way that is unhealthy, I'm, I'm discontent. I, gr- I grow discontent with my life when I'm kind of like, yeah, I'm just kind of disappointed that by this point, uh, my life looks this way. I kind of thought it would look different. And when that disappointment begins to grow and become frustration or, or anger or depression or um, I blame somebody else or I just I pout or I become bitter and I become jealous of people whose lives look like I wanted to, whatever. Whenever the things in life that don't look like I thought they would by this point begin to affect me in unhealthy ways, that's when I'm discontent. And I have to wrestle with that so that I can be in a place where I am content. Where I really just believe that God is sovereign and this is what he wants my life to look like and that's all that matters. Now, if, if uh, I'm 34 years old, if you had asked me at 17, if you'd sat me down and said, what do you think you'll look like in this many years? Double your life right now. What do you think your life would look like? My life right now just being completely honest, is probably a mixture of things I absolutely thought would, would be the case at 34, things that are way better than I thought they would be at 34, and things that have not quite gotten to where I wanted, would hope, they, hope where they would have been as a 17-year-old. So, I mean, the things where I thought, I mean, I'm not real shocked by that. Things that are better than that, I'm like, I'm blessed beyond measure. Um, but it's this other category that's where discontentment tends to grow. And it's not, discontentment is not just something that is limited to the area of relationships. I feel like within church culture, where we are, that's kind of how it is, you know? Like if, if you ask somebody, hey, how's this person doing? They're like, oh, they're kind of struggling with, you know, discontentment. They're pretty much going to go to relationship of some sort. Typically, are they dating someone or not, married or not, you know, whatever. Are they in a relationship or not, according to Facebook, right? And so, are you in a relationship or not, 
can be a source of contentment or discontentment. But also, I mean, it's not just people are either single or they're not. I mean, sometimes it's the health of, the, of that relationship, right? Sometimes people are in relationships that are ridiculously unhealthy. They're dating somebody and it's like, should not be going on. Or sometimes, yeah, they're, you're married, but marriage really hasn't maybe turned out like you thought it would. Like you're like, maybe I did watch too many movies like my parents told me. Maybe I do have this, this unrealistic set of expectations about marriage. And maybe I'm growing more and more discontent, bitter, unhappy, sad, angry. I'm starting to blame. I'm starting to whatever. Or maybe, maybe within marriage, maybe marriage is okay, but maybe like, you don't have kids. And so, um, you know, since you don't have kids, that discontentment grows. Or maybe you have kids, and your kids aren't like somebody else's kids, and you kind of wish they were. So within all these relationships, I mean, it's not just are you single or not. No matter what, the, no matter what your quote-unquote status is, there can be discontentment no matter, no matter what. You can be discontent in friendships. You can say, I have a lot of friends, but I don't have any like, true friends who really know what's going on with me. I have people I go to the movies with. I don't have people who pray for me and read my mail and they like, hold me accountable. I don't have those kind of... I mean, there could be anything within that area. But contentment isn't just relational. Um, there are all kinds of people who are discontent with their, with their job. And you're like, did I really go to school and get trained to do this? And am I, is this my destiny? Am I, like, is office space the movie, is that my life? Is, that gonna, is it going to always be that way? Am I going to bash the copier machine with a baseball bat at some point and just lose it? Because I think I might. And there's this discontentment there with like, oh, I, I think I made a bad career move, you know, or whatever. Or maybe you kind of put yourself in a situation where you hate your job, but you can't quit it because you have so much debt. Or you have responsibilities, you know. You're the, you're the dad of the family, and you don't really like your job, but you don't have a choice because the money that you make is the only way your family's going to continue to live in the way that they're used to, and so it's not as easy as, well, just go find another job or whatever. And sometimes just that financial, financially we can be discontent. You know, you can say, I just would have thought by this point I would be making more money or I would not be living paycheck to paycheck or I would have knocked off some of this, these school loans or, or that, you know, I thought by this point I would have a, like this big house and these big vehicles and a boat and a camp and all this stuff like my friends from high school who I see run into them at Walmart or whatever and I see them and it's like, you know, whatever. Um, and so maybe just financially you're just, I'm just so discontent because if I just had a little more money then this will be different, this will be different, you know, whatever. And those parts of life that, that have not turned out the way you thought they would by this point, when that begins to affect you in unhealthy ways, it's a problem. And it doesn't sound like the most, like, spiritual thing to talk about, you know? Shouldn't we talk about sin and evangelism and missions and stuff? We do. We have. Right now, we're going we're gonna to dig into this. And it's in line with where God's had our community groups and Sunday nights and all kind of stuff lately. This is just another part of it. Um, so we're going to look uh, at a couple of things that we looked at in the, that summer group. So if you're in the summer group, you don't have to leave now. Uh, but we're going to cover some of that same ground. If you weren't in it, now's your chance to play catch-up. Go to Exodus 14. And I'm just going to warn you, I have a lot to say. Um, which probably doesn't shock you very much. Um, 
The reason why we're going to start with the Israelites is that the Israelites were, they were people who um, were living in slavery. God had set them free. And so now they were trying to learn how to live with God as their caregiver, as their provider, as their king. That is eerily similar to where you and I are. We were enslaved to sin. We had been set free. Now we're trying to learn to live with God as our caregiver and our provider and our king. So it would behoove us to look at their example and to see the lessons that they learned or didn't learn and see how those things can apply to us. So we're going to try to take like four chapters tonight, or three, four, four chapters tonight, and uh, kind of condense it down and see what, what we can learn. Now, if you, just to kind of catch you up, they were in, enslaved. Moses went in to, uh, you know, said, let my people go. They had all the plagues. And, you know, Moses was like, if you don't, if you don't let them go, if Pharaoh, if you don't let them go, then the bad stuff's going to happen. Pharaoh said no. Something bad happened. And, you know, all the water turned to blood, and then there were flies and gnats and locusts and frogs, and all the cattle died, and it was just craziness. He w- went to him nine times, and every single time, Pharaoh said no. And so on the tenth one, uh, it was called the, the Passover, and so God had, um, he had them take blood of a lamb, and they went through this whole, this whole deal. But basically, they took the blood, put it over the doorpost, and then the Spirit of God passed over um, everyone. Where there was blood over the doorpost, he literally passed over their house. Where blood was not on the doorpost, he killed the firstborn son of that household. Or the firstborn cow of that household. The firstborn of everything died. And, of course, Pharaoh had a son. His son died, and when his son died, he was like, that's it, go. So all of Israel, they pack up and they take off and they go. And um, in chapter 14, uh, we find them in this place where God didn't bring them from point A to point B because he knew that between point A and point B, there were people living there who were there going to have to fight, and these people weren't fighters. And, but more importantly, they didn't trust God yet. So he said, instead of bringing you from point A to point B, I'm going to bring you way over here in the middle of nowhere where um, all you can do is depend on me. I'm going to train you up, build your trust. Then we're going to march in there, and by that point, you'll trust me enough, and we'll just plow right through them. Okay? So that brings us up to chapter 13, and here's 14. Um, Pharaoh uh, had a change of heart. He begins to pursue them. He gets word that basically the Israelites have, have pinned them, basically put themselves into a corner at the Red Sea. So he's like, let's just go and get them. So they start, they're charging at, um, at all the Israelites. So here's all the Israelites. There's the sea on one side, and there's literally the Pharaoh's army coming at them on the other side. So God's spirit, who'd been guiding them in the form of a cloud or a pillar of fire, put himself between the army and the Israelites. So they had, they, there was some time bought, all right? So here they are. They're pinned in. They don't really know what to do. Look at verse 10, chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Okay, remember that. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in, in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. 
Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All right, let's take, take a few things. I have eight points. I may not get to all eight tonight. Um, if, I'll do some next week or whatever. Um, and they're not going to be organized points, and they're not all going to start with the same letter. So I hope that doesn't disappoint you. Um, if you can make all eight of these start with the same letter, then I know you're calling in life. Um, we'll talk later. Um, so, okay, so here's the first point. When, when wrestling with contentment, so one, th- one thing we can learn from the Israelites is that there's always something that lies beneath the surface. There's always something there that is where, where something is rooted. If you go to a counselor, um, in counseling, uh, you know, they do all this background information about you, whatever. But basically, they're going to ask you, okay, why, why are you here? What they're looking for is, is what some would call the presenting problem. Okay? So let's say that you go in and you say, I'm, I'm, I'm not content. Okay? Why? Well, I really, I really won't, thought I'd be married by now. A bad counselor would say, well, we just need to get you a boyfriend. eHarmony.com, that'll be 75 bucks. That's a bad counselor. If you go in and you say, I'm discontent because I hate my job, but this is my, I have a degree in this, and I hate it, and I feel trapped. A bad counselor would say, well, get another job. Quit, quit that job, get another job. If you go in and you say, I'm married, but marriage has not turned out like I thought it would be, a bad counselor would say, well, have you filed for a divorce yet? If you go in and you say, I'm not where I would want, want, thought I'd be financially by this point, bad counselor would say, have you played the lottery? Let's go through your portfolio and see how we can just make you more money. Is there a way, ethically at work, you can steal money from the company? Those are bad counseling people. You should not pay them. A good counselor would take those issues and recognize the fact that that's the presenting problem. That's the part of the iceberg that's sticking out of, that's the obvious part. But beneath that, there's all, there are, are lying other issues, and that's really where, where counselors try to get. That's really, counseling is really just, uh, I had a friend who's, who, he just calls it intense discipleship, like very focused discipleship. Um, and if you think about counseling like that, like, you're like I, we all need to go to that. So a good counselor will help, will start there, then start asking questions to kind of trace down to the root. See, with the Israelites, they're, you know, what presents is they're discontent with the fact that they're about to be smoked by the Egyptians. They know who these people are. They know that, that they're violent because they've been enslaved to them for like 400 years. Um, they, they know what's coming. And even though there's this big pillar of fire in between them now, they're still kind of panicking. And they're blaming Moses. And they're saying, why did you bring us out here? We told you not to, blah, blah, blah. It says that they were afraid. So, beneath, so the presenting issues, they're discontent with their circumstances at this point. They feel like they've been deceived or whatever, but really they're afraid. They're looking for someone to blame, and that's a sign of um, self-idolatry, which we'll talk about in community group this week. It sounds great. Um, they are absolutely focused on their circumstances. They have completely forgotten the ten plagues that they witnessed and experienced and the fact that... Um, 
the Pharaoh let all of them go. So there's always something that lies beneath. So the, the issue is not that, that you're discontent with relationships or money or jobs or school or, what, or kids or whatever. That's just the presenting problem. There's something that lies beneath that. So we need to figure out what, what that is. Now, I can't really, I mean, I'm not going to, I can't tell you what it is. I can go through possible scenarios and stuff, but ultimately we need the Lord to show us what is lying beneath this area of discontentment for me um, that is causing me to, uh, to let it affect me this way. Why does being single bother me so much? Why does being married but not having kids bother me so much? Why, why has the, the fact that my marriage doesn't look like I thought it would, why have I let like, all hope completely vanish out of that situation? Why do I see no hope financially? Why do I see no hope, all this, just whatever. So, the presenting problem is not the issue. For them, their, their circumstances were not the issue. They didn't trust the Lord. That was the issue. And what's awesome about God is he's like, look, the presenting problem, what's it, don't worry about that. Because for him, he's like, I'm going to build your trust. That's what's most important. I brought you into the wilderness, and you think it's random, but it's not random because I'm not random. It seems random to you because you're, you're just you, and I'm God. So I'm going to take form in a pillar of fire and get between them, and then we're going to part this water, and you're going to go across, and everything's going to be fine. So the, in our discontentment, and you might be sitting here, you might be thinking, I'm, not, I'm totally content with stuff. Well, maybe this is for you to help somebody else, or maybe this is because discontentment is right around the corner for you. Um, whatever the, the issue is, it's not the issue. There's something that lies beneath. And that's where, that's where the Spirit of God is trying to get. Because the solution is not for you to run out and get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or to run out and get married, or to run out and get a divorce, or run out and quit your job. And the solution is definitely not for you to pout and be depressed and just pretend like Jesus doesn't even love you anymore and all those songs we just sang aren't even true. The issue is let's... let's Let's see what lies beneath, and let's let God take care of that. So, that's point number one. And what I love about that, see, discontentment usually comes from something in life, like I said, that has not turned out like you thought it would be, and it begins to affect you um, in, in an unhealthy way, a lot of times because you can't just remedy it right away. Because even though a counselor may say, we just need to get you a boyfriend, it's just not that easy. I don't mean like it's not that easy for you to get a boyfriend. I just mean that's just not how life works. You can't run to Walmart and just get something that's going to fix these areas of discontentment. These are usually big things. Today's economy, you're not going to just run out and get another job. You're not going to just run out and make a whole lot of money or whatever. These aren't things that we could just quickly fix. In a world where there's a fix for almost everything else, these, these areas are the ones that just take root and they get weird. And a lot of times that has a way of just kind of vacuuming out all the hope that things could be different. And I don't mean things could be different as in like you could be in a relationship. 
I mean that you could be content with where you are currently. I mean that in a marriage that's maybe not what it should be, maybe to begin to see some purpose in that, which sounds really awkward. Like, why would, why would there be purpose in an unhealthy marriage? Well, have you asked the Lord yet? Or are you just blaming your spouse or whatever? See, there's, there's hope within each of those things. There's hope that you can go from being discontent to being content, not even by the circumstances changing, but in how they affect you. I'm going to move on because I'm going to end up covering all my points accidentally. The next point is this. Um, contentment is one big test of faith. It's one big test of faith. I've said this many times before. Tests of faith are not God's way of trying to trick you to see if you read all the, all the choices correctly. There's no all of the above, and you're, you, know, you always second-guess that one. You're like, well, maybe it is all of the above. I don't, I don't know. God is for you. So a test is not going to be him being like, I want to see if you get this right or not before we move on with things. A test of faith that God initiates is, he's basically just saying, dude, trust me. See, academic testing, the, the question is, do you know the right answer? In the test of faith, it's do you trust me or not? So con- contentment, discontentment, this whole whatever area of life it is for you, like it is this one big giant test of faith of God saying, do you trust me with your life or not? Do you trust me with your money or not? Do you trust me with your relationships or not? Do you trust that I have this plan and where I have you right now, you're right in the center of it or not? If you don't believe I'm sovereign, then just tell me, I don't believe you're sovereign. We, and then we'll deal with that. It's one giant test of faith. Look at verse 13. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. You just, you just be silent. And you watch, watch him fix this. The problem is, do we trust him enough to keep our mouth shut? You know? Do we trust him enough to not get uptight about our singleness or relationships or whatever? Do we trust him enough with our lives to just, just say, I'm just going to um, you know, be quiet? I'm going to be still and just know that he's God, that he's enough? That when you realize these things are affecting you in unhealthy ways and you realize, like, I, I'm way more discontent than I realized, just to just find peace and calm in that, to read those verses and say, I want to stand firm, I want to fear not, I want to see the salvation that the Lord will work for me today, I want him to fight for me, and I just want to keep my mouth shut. I want to emotionally just have that peace that makes no sense just flowing through my life. See, you won't be that way if you trust God through this test of faith. Now, I don't, I'm not saying this, that God's like this mean dude who's like manipulating your life and stuff. See, tests of faith are, are like, they're always good. We studied through the fruit of the Spirit in community groups last, uh, last semester, and one of the things we talked about was what goodness means. Goodness always acts 
in a way that's what's best for the other person. And because the Spirit of God is one of the ways he describes himself is good, then he acts in a way that is good. And so wherever you are, wherever I am in life, is a good place. So are we going to trust the, our good God or not? It's this huge test of faith. Now, the Israelites, here they are, Egyptians, okay, Egyptians, pillar of fire, Israelites, body of water. They were in a place where I would imagine it was probably difficult. And I'm sure they were like, okay, we saw the plagues. We know we got out. We know all this stuff. We see the fire. He's led us to this point, this pillar of fire. We fire it. We've just followed it steadily. We, we understand all this. However, People want to kill us. They're right there. And Moses just stands up. Don't be afraid. Stand firm. God's going to handle this. And so what does God do? He handles it. Now in their situation, he changed the circumstances. So there will be times when your circumstances will change. When you're in, in this place, and let's say that your discontentment is with your marriage, um, if, if you take the bull by the horns, and, like, our marriage needs to be better, so we're going we're gonna to sit down with people, whether it's a counselor or another couple or me or whatever, because I know a lot about being married. Um, we're, gonna, we're not just going to sit here and pout. We're going to do something about it. Um, sometimes, like, God will, he'll, crazy, he honors that. He changes the circumstances. And probably, in the, I'm just assuming in the mind of the Israelites, the water parting and them crossing on dry land was probably not a big option. They're probably like, well, maybe he'll just, like, the pillar of fire just fall on them. He'll just burn them up. I'm sure they had all kinds of options, but I don't know that the, the water parting was an option. But there will be times in that discontentment where a test of faith will result in the circumstances literally changing. Now, single people, I'm, I'm in your camp. That does not mean just trust God a little more, he'll give you a mate. Because there are other sets of, of circumstances with, with discontentment. The circumstances are not going to change. What really needs to change is the way you either embrace or reject where he has you, where he has us. So sometimes the circumstances change. Sometimes it's just how we relate to those circumstances. But regardless... We have to trust that our God is who he says he is, and he does what he says he does. It's one big test of faith. Do you trust me? So there's always something beneath the surface. One big test of faith. Look at, uh, look at the last two verses of that chapter. Look at 14. 1430. Thus the Lord said, uh, saved Israel that day, from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Okay, remember he told him, he said, look, you're not, the ones you see today, you're not going to see them anymore. I think it's just significant. I just noticed that verse um, yesterday, that part of that verse. They got to the other side and they saw dead Egyptians all along the seashore. Tell me that's not an image that will stick with you. They saw his deliverance. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord 
and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, we see that kind of delivery. Look at chapter 15. Moses and the people sing this song together. It's long, we won't read it. But they're basically just they're praising God for this deliverance. They just are just blown away by the power and the goodness of God and how he has rescued them. Look at verse 22 in chapter 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. All right, three days, no water. Verse 23, when they came to Morah, they could not drink the water of Morah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Morah. All right. Here, here it is. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Okay, now, here's my, here's my next point. I'm going to run through these real quick. My next point is this. It's okay to feel a certain way about your life. For them, they had been three days with no water. It was perfectly fine for them to be like, I'm just thirsty. It's fine for you to say, I kind of, like, you know, wish that I was... Making more money. Like, I wish that money wasn't so tight. I wish, I wish that I didn't hate money so much because it's such a source of whatever, you know? It's okay to say, my job, it just drains me, and I, I, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm just not real happy there. It's fine to say that. It's fine to say, I really wish that my relationships look different, whatever. But it's, it's how you let it affect you and what you do about it that counts. So I'm not up here saying that you should never have an opinion about your life. Because sometimes those feelings that we have, sometimes, you know, when in, a, in your marriage, you're like, our marriage, I don't feel like our marriage is very good. That's a very, 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 very good feeling. That's a very good emotion to have because it clues you in as to what's going on. It's a red flag. It helps you move in a direction that's positive. But it's how you let that affect you. If, if you're married and your marriage is not shaping up like you thought and you just pout about it, or you tell all your, your, your buddies or your girlfriends or whatever, like, you know, uh, you, and you blame your spouse or you don't pray about it, you don't communicate and all this kind of stuff, that would be the negative way to handle it. See, it says here that they grumbled against Moses. I, I don't, the line between, like, just genuinely just being honest about how you feel about something and grumbling about it is, is pretty fine. And we probably cross over a lot of times without even realizing it. So it, it's, it's okay to feel a certain way about it. It's about what you do about it and how you let it affect you that counts. That's what this series is going to try to get into, is realizing, uh, some people realize, um, this is what's going on, and this is the effect it's having on me. I need to know what to do about it. Well, some of the, the first start, step is really re- recognizing, okay, what's affecting me, me in ways that's unhealthy, and am I doing anything about it at all? Next point, verse 25 all right, so they grumbled at Moses, so we're going to drink. Verse 25, and he cried to the Lord. All right, here's a simple point. You've got to bring it to God. I mean, it seems like a given, you know. Bringing it to God is it's an absolute must. That's a lot of times why our times of discontentment last way longer than we're supposed to, because we don't pray about them. We don't say, God, what do, what do you have to say about my financial picture? What do you have to say about work? What do you have to say about school? What do you have to say about this decision I have to make? Um, we just fret and worry and all this kind of stuff, whatever. 
talk about a powerful moment. If you come to the Lord and you say, um, Lord, what do you have to say about my marital, about my relationship status? I mean, what do you think he's going to say? You're not marriage material? No. You married a loser? No. Might as well split up because there's nothing I can do here? No. It'll probably sound something like, um, I love you. Let's do this. You're right where I want you to be. Just don't be afraid. Stand firm. Trust me. Those kinds of things. Next point. Look at, uh, okay, so he finds, so Moses throws this log into the water and it becomes sweet and they can drink it. So the Lord made a rule, verse 26. said, if you'll diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his command, commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the, on the Egyptians, for I'm the Lord your healer. See, contentment and obedience go together. If you go to the Lord and you say, I'm discontent about this, what do you have to say about it? And he says, all that stuff I said, I love you and I have a plan, all this kind of stuff. And then he wants you to do something. If he says, I want you, I want you as a married couple to go see a counselor. And you don't do it? Well, don't expect to just all of a sudden be content. All of a sudden I'm content with a cruddy marriage. Not going to happen. See, there's always going to be obedience in there. God's always going to, there's always going to be something for us to do. And that obedience is the way we answer the question, do you trust me? See, I, can, I can, can stand here all day long and say, God, I trust you so much. You're just the best God ever. When it comes to real life, my obedience is how I really answer the question. My words don't mean much. Do I walk it out? That's how I, tell him, that's how I really tell him yes or no. So there's always going to be obedience in there. So as we dig into this, these contentment issues, be ready because he may ask you to talk to other people about it, to talk to your spouse to get some financial counseling from someone who knows how to put a budget together and knows something about how debt works. Um, it may require you to talk to your parents about maybe changing your major, or, or it may require you to talk to your boss and just be like, look, I just need you to know I'm unhappy, and you might want to fire me now, but I don't really know what else to do. It may require you to do some things. Actually, it's definitely going to require you to do some things. So if you don't want to do anything, then you just hang out in discontentmentville all you want, and set up your camp there. There will be other people there too and you can all get together and mope and complain and whatever. But the rest of us, we're ready to, we're ready to be healed of some stuff. And then it says, then they came to Elam where, they, where there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they camped there by the water. See, God's always going to show up. Last three points, I'm just going to run through these so fast, it's going to freak you out. In Exodus 16, they were mad because there was no food. In Exodus 17, we're not going to read the verses. In Exodus 17, you can read it yourself. Uh, there was no water. So in 16, they start complaining because there's no food. In 17, they start complaining there's no water. Now, these are the same people who went through the plagues, the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea. Um, I mean, all of these things, God just keeps showing up and showing up and showing up. And here they are. There's no food. We should have died back in Egypt. 
we were pots of meat. We sat around pots of meat back there, and people were grumbling and complaining. They didn't learn anything from what they had been through. That's the next point, I think. Yeah, we have to learn. You have to learn from where you've been and the things that God's brought you through. I have to learn from that, of his faithfulness. That's why we have that cross back there with all these popsicle sticks, with all these reasons to trust God. So you literally write a prayer request in the shadow of, of all these reasons that you have to trust him. You have to look at your life and say, he, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. He's constantly proven to me that he has a plan and that he loves me. And so if you don't want to learn from all that, then... You're kind of like the Israelites. But I want to learn from that. From the very beginning, our church has really tried to just say, all right, we didn't go through that for nothing. What was it for? What should we learn? What should we learn? We have to learn. Next point. Um, even though we try, to, we try to blame him, he's still faithful. In chapter 16, they're, they're just livid because there's no food. Now, God would have every right to be like, hey, you want to yell at me? Fine. You can starve out here. There are certainly are times when that discontentment grows to where we get frustrated with the Lord. We get frustrated by the fact that our lives don't look like we think they should have looked by now. And we're going to talk about entitlement and comparison and all those ugly things next week. But for right now, let's just admit the fact that sometimes we look at God and we say, why are you blessing all these other people in these ways, but you're not blessing me? And all this karma comes into our theology and we start saying, well, I guess it must not be living right because if you live right, the good things happen. And, but then you're like, I know they're not living right, but good things are happening. And all this goofiness goes around in our head. Even when we are faithless to God, and you read the rest of chapter 16, he fed them. They had quail come down. Every morning the dew would, once the dew, you know, normally here it evaporates, it would flake up and they could eat it. And for 40 years, they ate that stuff. For 40 years, he fed them, even though they shook their fist at him. Our God is faithful. So don't let the enemy come in and lie to you and say, well, because you hadn't prayed and you hadn't done whatever and you hadn't done all this kind of stuff, and that's why your life looks the way you look. Get that karma junk out of, of the way we think. That's not the God that we serve. He is faithful. And in 17... The same thing, they're like, they were like, we don't have any water, and the water comes out of the rock, and it's incredible. And one of, the, one of their grumblings, it says in the end of verse 7, uh, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Are you even here? And of course, of course he's here. The presence of God changes everything. The presence of God in our lives changes absolutely everything. I want to close by reading this. I know I probably talked too much, but it's, it'll be all right. Let me read this to you. In fact, let me have band, y'all go ahead and come up. Two birds, one stone. I know, that, oh, it got dark. Um, no, it's cool. I, I just looked up and it was dark. I thought I'd, I was about to pass out. Um, here's the thing. So, You may not be in this place where contentment is an issue for you now. Like I said, it, before, it might be about helping somebody else. It may be because it's coming. It may be because you've just kind of convinced yourself that your life, that God just wants you to be miserable and unhappy. Um, 
there needs to be some hope brought into all, all of life, but especially those areas where we realize, like, wow, this is really getting me down. This really bothers me. I really go and go the extra mile to act like this about me doesn't bother me, but it, that's my insecurity and just the way it shows up. I think bringing, bring, just kind of bringing it all together, I think God wants us to come to a place where it doesn't matter. I mean, our circumstances are irrelevant. You know? That what you look like, what you feel like, the different kinds of status that we attain to or whatever in life, for those things to just play a very appropriate role. We talked in community group this last week about idolatry and how... Um, idols are typically things that are good they start off good in and of themselves they're fine but then they begin to to take on this life of their own because they carry so much weight with us Um, so I think being in a a place where uh, your relationship status is just your relationship status you know college students where your grades they're just grades I've said this before, I, I would love for some of the some of our kids in our church to grow up in this environment where, let's say they're 15, they start dating somebody and they break up, and it's just a breakup. And it's sad, and, they're, and they cry, and they're feeling hurt, whatever, but it doesn't rattle them to the core because they've built themselves all, their whole identity's been built around dating this boy or girl or whatever. And so for us to, to be in a, in a place where Life is just life. The things that try to label us, they're just whatever. They don't mean anything. And we give up those those things compared to this great big thing. This great big God who has this great big plan. And we fit into it somehow. And this season of life fits into it. And so if, if you go to your grave not making as much money as you think. It's, it's cool. It's just money. If you go to your grave living in this the house or the apartment or whatever you live in right now, it'd be fine. It's just it's a house. But if you live the rest of your life and you never get married, it's all right. God's plan for me. It's fine. And the things where the circumstances need to change, where marriages that aren't healthy, that discontentment pushes you to action, pushes the husband to lead his home, uh, that's, a, that's beautiful. In uh, Jeremiah 29, you're probably familiar with this, they've been exiled, they've been taken from Jerusalem, they've been taken to Babylon, and um, to the people of Israel, I mean, when God brought them to the promised land, I mean, that was, that was it. And they kept getting removed and overcome, and it was just this—it was a big deal. But the the land itself, there's this connection to the land because it was promised, and uh, so they were they were down about their circumstances. They were down because life wasn't supposed to be this way. They were the people of God. They were supposed to live in Jerusalem, and I mean, this was like that's who they are. So verse four says, "Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all exiles who have sent from, uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon." That's what he tells them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. 
Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I mean, he's telling them, look, you need to set up shop. Don't sit around and pout. I've brought you into exile. I've, I've got you in this place. I'm the author of all this. Not culture, not whatever. Uh, I'm the author of this. Verse 10 says, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. 70 years. If God came, if Jesus walked into right now and said, In 70 years, this is going to happen, a lot of us would not be around. So he's telling these people, look, 70 years, something's going to happen. Between now and then, you need to build some houses and have some kids and plant some gardens and, and marry your kids off and whatever because I'm going to come and bring you back. I need some people to still be here. So I bring you back into exile, uh, back from exile. For I know the plans I have for you. Oh yeah, that's where it comes from. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. You'll call on me and come to me and pray to me and I'll hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you. I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. See, it's weird because here's where always we like to start with that. I have the plan for you and it's going to be great and this prosperity gospel thing like kind of flares up and you think God wants me to have a lot of money in a big house. But actually in context, that's a completely different verse. He's like, guess what? 70 years you're going to live in exile. On purpose. And there's a reason for it. So there's a reason why we are where we are in life. I don't, I don't know what it is. He knows what it is. And I have to get to the place where I'm perfectly fine with whatever my circumstances are because I know that it fits into his plan. His plan is always good. Always good. Without exception. Because he's a good and faithful God. Now I know that's not an easy place to just transition yourself to emotionally. But I do believe that spiritually it's easy to get there. And so if we begin to connect those dots spiritually, our emotions will be, um, they'll be forced to submit to the spiritual truth that's there. So that's where, we're, that's where we're going the next couple weeks. We're going to keep digging this stuff up. But we worship the faithful God. Even though we may not be there emotionally yet, spiritually we know the truth. And that's where we're going to start. So we're going to sing a song or two to kind of seal some of these things up. I don't know how it fits with your life. Um, and I, I care, but in another sense I kind of don't because it's your relationship with God. It's you and the Lord need to do it with whatever. But I do care as far as I want to help you. Let's just begin or whatever. Let's just continue what he has. Let's just close by singing these songs of truth together. Let's stand up. Let's just worship him. Forget your emotions. Forget whatever. This is true and you know it. Sing it.